Hi everyone, I miss you. This is Mrs. Mori, and I have the book Small Steps with me to read to you tonight. We're on chapter 12, A Disappointing Trip, and we're about halfway through the chapter on page 116. Remember that she had just gotten it to go home on a trip, and so she was talking about how her dad was wheeling her up the ramp to re reach the stairs and come in the front door. It was great to see Grandpa, although when he saw my wheelchair, he looked so unhappy that I felt I should apologize. BJ didn't care whether I could walk or not. He barked and ran in circles and slurped my hands. Mother had prepared all of my favorite foods, macaroni and cheese, green beans, Waldorf salad, and for dessert, cream puffs. Mother's cream puffs were six inches across, filled with whipped cream, and topped with homemade hot fudge sauce. I always requested them for birthdays and special company. I was unable to push my wheelchair on the carpeting. Dad had to push me into the dining room. The arms of my wheelchair were too high to fit under the table, so I had to be helped into a re regular chair. Once there, I couldn't slide the chair forward. By the time I was in place, I was too discouraged to eat much. The first floor of our house had a tiny half bath consisting of a toilet and a sink. My wheelchair did not fit in it. To get the chair close enough to the toilet, I had to leave the door open. There was no bar on the wall to hold on to like there was at sheltering arms. So I needed help to get off the toilet. The lack of privacy embarrassed me. Since going upstairs was out of the question, I slept in a cot in the living room. I had longed to come home, but now that I was there, it wasn't much fun. Home wasn't the same if I couldn't sleep in my own bedroom or use the bathroom by myself. It wasn't the same when I couldn't sit down at the table without help. I felt like a stranger in those familiar rooms. When it was time to go to sleep, I wished I had someone to sing with. In the morning, I practiced one of my piano lessons and discovered that my foot could no longer work the sustain puddle. When BJ brought his rag toy to me, I wasn't strong enough to play tug as I used to. My friend Karen called, but when the phone rang, I couldn't move my chair across the carpet to answer it. I had to wait for Grandpa to push me. At noon, it began to snow. Mother and Dad decided we should leave early in case the roads were icy. I did not object. I was ready to return to the hospital. Trying to get along in a normal world was too hard. I still needed more help than my well-meaning family could provide. The ride was even more tiring this time because I was weary at the start from the effort and excitement of my time at home. Once again, once again I clung to the armrest and struggled to keep my balance in the back seat. Because of the snow, it took longer than usual to get back to Minneapolis. I grew more uncomfortable with every minute. With relief and gladness, I returned to the welcoming arms of sheltering arms. Miss Ballard questioned me at length on Monday morning. When I confessed I had been glad to come back, she smiled ruefully and said, I was afraid of that, but I had had to let you try. Silver almost threw me, I said, going up the steps to my house. Miss Ballard looked horrified and covered her ears with her hands. I don't want to hear about it, she said. Chapter 13, The Great Accordion Concert. 
Although I had not yet mastered the fine art of moving the pile of marbles from spot to spot with my toes, I received a new challenge in occupational therapy. I was going to learn to play the accordion. Certain muscles of the arms and hands are used when pushing an accordion in and out, and it happened that I needed help with those particular muscles. The sheltering arms owned an accordion, and Miss Ballard knew I had two years of piano lessons. She said the accordion was the perfect lesson for me. From my very first attempt, I hated the accordion. It was heavy and awkward, and pushing it in and out made my arms ache. The trick of playing a melody on the keyboard with one hand, pushing the proper chord buttons with the other hand, and at the same time, pushing and pulling on the accordion itself was completely beyond me. It would be easier if you asked me to juggle and tap dance at the same time, I said. You just need to practice, Miss Ballard replied. Try, a try it a little longer. I did try, however, even when I got the correct right-hand note with the proper left-hand chord and pushed air through the bellows at the same time, I didn't care much for the sound. I had never liked accordion music, and my efforts during occupational therapy did nothing to change my mind. When my parents heard about the accordion, mother said, Oh, what fun! You've always loved your piano lessons. That's different, I said. I like the way the piano sounds. You already know how to read music, Dad pointed out. You will master that accordion in no time. I insisted I would never be adept on the accordion, and Dad kept saying it would be a breeze. I finally said, why don't you play it if you think it's so easy? All right, I will, said Dad, and off he went to the OT room to borrow the accordion. He came back with the shoulder straps in place and an eager look on his face. My dad played the piano by ear, so he didn't need sheet music. Even so, the sounds he produced could only be called squawks and squeaks. He pushed and he pulled. He punched at the buttons. He grew red in the face. Beads of perspiration popped out on his bald spot. Something vaguely resembling the first few notes of beer barrel polka emerged from the accordion, but they were accompanied by assorted other sounds none of which could be called musical. We covered our ears. The girls, we made faces, and we booed. We pointed our thumbs down. Mother laughed until tears ran down her cheeks. Finally, Dad admitted defeat, temporary defeat. I'll try again next week, he said. Meanwhile, I want you to keep practicing. It will just sound as terrible next week, I said, but I agreed to work on my accordion technique technique a while longer. The following Sunday, we could hardly wait to tease Dad about his musical fiasco. When do we get another accordion concert, Renee asked the minute my parents arrived. Wait, exclaimed Alice, I want to put in my earplugs. We teased Dad until he reluctantly agreed to try it again. We snickered and teed and brought as the OT brought the accordion into the room. He sat on a chair and carefully adjusted the straps. Quit stalling, I said. What's the rush, said Renee as she put her fingers to her ears. Dad became, began to play. Instead of squawks and squeaks, he played beer barrel polka flawlessly from start to finish. 
Our jaws dropped. We gazed at him and each other with astonishment. When he finished the song, our questions exploded like a string of firecrackers. How did you learn to play? Who taught you? Where did you get an accordion? He simply smiled while Mother applauded. Then they told us the whole story. He had rented an accordion from the music store and practiced every spare second in order to surprise us with his concert. Can you play any other songs, I asked. It took me all week to learn just that one, Dad said. And he stayed up till midnight every night practicing, Mother added. After that, I didn't dare complain about my accordion sessions. I never did get as good as Dad got just in one week, but I managed to produce a few recognizable tunes, and the effort did help strengthen my arm muscles and fingers. The Sheltering Arms had a school which Dorothy, Renee, Alice, and I attended. Shirley was supposed to go, too, but because of her week back, she could only sit up in a wheelchair for an hour at a time, so she didn't always make it to class. The staff consisted of one dedicated overworked teacher, Mrs. West, who tried to help the dozens of children of varying ages and educational backgrounds. It should have been an impossible task, made even harder by the fact that all the students had physical disabilities, yet the school was orderly and effective. Students in wheelchairs got a wooden desktop, which attached to the arms of the wheelchair and provided a writing surface. I loved my new desk for the first time since I got polio. It was comfortable to write. The desktop also made it easier and less tiring to hold a book. The school had a small library, and Mrs. West recommended books to us. A librarian from the Minneapolis Public Library brought books once a week and was always willing to take requests. I stopped reading books for children and began reading adult books. I read The Hunchback of Notre Dame and War and Peace and The Scarlet Letter. Because hot baths, physical therapy, and OT took up much of my time, I was in school for only two hours a day. I hungered for more. I especially liked hearing books read aloud and the book writing the book reports. Mrs. West had several 7th grade textbooks, but they were not the same books that I had in my school at home. She suggested that I try to get the same books that my classmates in Austin were using. That way you won't be so far behind when you get home, she said. My mother talked to the principal in Austin, who agreed that mother should bring me textbooks from each of my classes, along with the weekly assignments that the other kids were doing. Because I had already missed so many weeks of classes and my hand still tired quickly when I wrote, I was not required to write the assignments or turn in any homework. At the end of the school year, I would take the same final exams that the other kids in my grade took for each class. If I passed, I would go on to eighth grade. If I failed, I would be held back a year to repeat those classes. No one ever told me to read my history assignments or study my math. It was up to me. Since I did not intend to be a grade behind my friends, I gladly taught myself. Alice was interested in my schoolwork, especially my history lessons. Whenever I told her what I was reading, she listened carefully. Sometimes she asked questions, which forced me to go back in my book for the answers. Other times we had lively discussions, which we both enjoyed. I learned to respect Alex, Alice's intellect, and I kidded her about getting a job as my tutor.
The school had a collection of newspapers and magazine articles about Sister Kenny. Curious about the woman who invented torture time, I read them. I had assumed Sister Kenny was a Catholic nun. She was not. Sister is an Australian military term, the equivalent of a first lieutenant in the United States Army. Elizabeth Kenny was commissioned Sister while serving as a nurse in World War I. Sister Kenny developed her unique treatments accidentally. While on vacation in the bush country of Australia in 1903, she was asked to help a sick child. Polio was not yet a common disease, and she had no idea what was wrong with the little girl, who was in extreme pain and unable to straighten one arm and leg. There was no telephone and no doctor or hospital nearby. Sister Kenny had a special interest and knowledge of muscles because her younger brother's muscles had been weak when he was a child. She developed exercises for him even before she began her nurse's training. She recognized that the little girl's agony was caused by severe muscle spasms, and she knew the relaxing power of heat. She tore a wool blanket into strips, dipped them in boiling water, wrung them out, and placed them on the child. The little girl stopped crying and fell asleep. Each time the little girl woke up in pain, Sister Kenny applied more hot packs. As the muscles relaxed, she gently massaged the child's arm and leg until the girl was able to straighten them. A second child soon showed the same symptoms, and once again, Sister Kenny eased the pain with hot packs and massage. Using her knowledge of muscles, she suggested exercises for the children to do as soon as they were well enough. When she was finally able to discuss these cases with the doctor, she learned that her patients had suffered from infantile paralysis, the original name for polio, and that her treatment had never before been tried. The doctor was amazed to learn that both the children had recovered. Family friends heard of her success in the bush country and asked her to treat their child. As polio epidemics increased, so did reports of Sister Kenny's unorthodox treatments, and other people sought her to help for their children too. Not all patients recovered completely, but many did, especially those who received treatment early in their illness. The Australian doctors ignored her successes and didn't try her ideas. She opened her own small clinic, and her methods worked so well that she began training other people to use them so she could open additional clinics. The Australian medical officials, however, refused to sanction her work. In 1938, at the height of the polio epidemic, they issued a lengthy report to the public which stated that Sister Kenny's methods were mistaken and unnecessary. Discouraged by this rejection, Sister Kenny left her homeland in 1940 and traveled to the United States, settling in Minnesota. Word of her unusual treatments preceded her, and when she arrived in the U.S., she was greeted by newspaper reporters. Possibly because the newspapers created high public interest, doctors in the United States gave her a chance to demonstrate her methods. They were astounded by her results. Badly crippled patients showed rapid improvement if they began the, the Kenny treatments soon enough. News of her accomplishments spread, and many doctors in Minneapolis asked Sister Kenny to work with their polio patients. Soon, her procedures were widely accepted, and in December 1942, 
the Sister Kenny Institute, a facility for teaching her theories and methods, was dedicated in Minneapolis. Eventually, her methods were adopted all over the world, including Australia. As I read, I realize how fortunate I was that by the time I was stricken with polio, the Kenny method was standard treatment for cases like mine. Previously, many polio patients were put in splints and casts to keep their arms and legs straight. Polio causes muscle spasms, which feel much like the familiar Charlie horse cramp that people sometimes get in their legs. The spasms caused people's arms and legs to bend, and without treatments, the limbs sometimes stayed bent permanently. The casts were intended to prevent that. I remembered the severe cramps that bent my knees when I first got polio and imagined how it would have felt if my legs had been put into casts. By comparison, by comparison, torture time seemed like a picnic. Prior to Sister Kenny, some patients were left in casts for years. When the casts were finally removed, the patients could not move their limbs at all because muscles, which are never used, waste away. Because of the casts, even muscles not affected by polio became withered. I didn't need to read to statistics <coughs> to know that the Kenny method worked. <coughs> All I had to do was move my arms and legs. I was getting better, and hers was the only treatment I had received. If I had gotten sick a few years earlier, while Sister Kenny was still in Australia, my future would surely have been dreary. Chapter 13, The Great Accordion Concert Although I had not yet mastered the fine art of moving the pile of marbles from spot to spot with my toes, I received a new challenge in occupational therapy. I was going to learn to play the accordion. Certain muscles of the arms and hands are used when pushing an accordion in and out, and it happened that I needed help with those particular muscles. The sheltering arms owned an accordion, and Miss Ballard knew I had two years of piano lessons. She said the accordion was the perfect lesson for me. From my very first attempt, I hated the accordion. It was heavy and awkward, and pushing it in and out made my arms ache. The trick of playing a melody on the keyboard with one hand, pushing the proper chord buttons with the other hand, and at the same time, pushing and pulling on the accordion itself was completely beyond me. It would be easier if you asked me to juggle and tap dance at the same time, I said. You just need to practice, Miss Ballard replied. Try, a try it a little longer. I did try, however, even when I got the correct right-hand note with the proper left-hand chord and pushed air through the bellows at the same time, I didn't care much for the sound. I had never liked accordion music, and my efforts during occupational therapy did nothing to change my mind. When my parents heard about the accordion, mother said, Oh, what fun! You've always loved your piano lessons. That's different, I said. I like the way the piano sounds. You already know how to read music, Dad pointed out. You will master that accordion in no time. I insisted I would never be adept on the accordion, and Dad kept saying it would be a breeze. I finally said, why don't you play it if you think it's so easy? All right, I will, said Dad. 
and off he went to the OT room to borrow the accordion. He came back with the shoulder straps in place and an eager look on his face. My dad played the piano by ear, so he didn't need sheet music. Even so, the sounds he produced could only be called squawks and squeaks. He pushed and he pulled. He punched at the buttons. He grew red in the face. Beads of perspiration popped out on his bald spot. Something vaguely resembling the first few notes of beer barrel polka emerged from the accordion, but they were accompanied by assorted other sounds, none of which could be called musical. We covered our ears. The girls, we made faces, and we booed. We pointed our thumbs down. Mother laughed until tears ran down her cheeks. Finally, Dad admitted defeat, temporary defeat. I'll try again next week, he said. Meanwhile, I want you to keep practicing. It will just sound as terrible next week, I said, but I agreed to work on my accordion technique a while longer. The following Sunday, we could hardly wait to tease Dad about his musical fiasco. When do we get another accordion concert, Renee asked the minute my parents arrived. Wait, exclaimed Alice. I want to put in my earplugs. We teased Dad until he reluctantly agreed to try it again. We snickered and teed and brought as the OT brought the accordion into the room. He sat on a chair and carefully adjusted the straps. Quit stalling, I said. What's the rush, said Renee as she put her fingers to her ears. Dad became, began to play. Instead of squawks and squeaks, he played beer barrel polka flawlessly from start to finish. Our jaws dropped. We gazed at him and each other with astonishment. When he finished the song, our questions exploded like a string of firecrackers. How did you learn to play? Who taught you? Where did you get an accordion? He simply smiled while Mother applauded. Then they told us the whole story. He had rented an accordion from the music store and practiced every spare second in order to surprise us with his concert. Can you play any other songs, I asked. It took me all week to learn just that one, Dad said. And he stayed up till midnight every night practicing, Mother added. After that, I didn't dare complain about my accordion sessions. I never did get as good as Dad got just in one week, but I managed to produce a few recognizable tunes, and the effort did help strengthen my arm muscles and fingers. The sheltering arms had a school which Dorothy, Renee, Alice, and I attended. Shirley was supposed to go, too, but because of her week back, she could only sit up in a wheelchair for an hour at a time, so she didn't always make it to class. The staff consisted of one dedicated overworked teacher, Mrs. West, who tried to help the dozens of children of varying ages and educational backgrounds. It should have been an impossible task, made even harder by the fact that all the students had physical disabilities, yet the school was orderly and effective. Students in wheelchairs got a wooden desktop, which attached to the arms of the wheelchair and provided a writing surface. I loved my new desk for the first time since I got polio. It was comfortable to write. The desktop also made it easier and less tiring to hold a book. The school had a small library, and Mrs. West recommended books to us. A librarian from the Minneapolis Public Library brought books once a week and was always willing to take requests.
I stopped reading books for children and began reading adult books. I read The Hunchback of Notre Dame and War and Peace and The Scarlet Letter. Because hot baths, physical therapy, and OT took up much of my time, I was in school for only two hours a day. I hungered for more. I especially liked hearing books read aloud and the book writing the book reports. Mrs. West had several 7th grade textbooks, but they were not the same books that I had in my school at home. She suggested that I try to get the same books that my classmates in Austin were using. That way you won't be so far behind when you get home, she said. My mother talked to the principal in Austin, who agreed that mother should bring me textbooks from each of my classes, along with the weekly assignments that the other kids were doing. Because I had already missed so many weeks of classes and my hand still tired quickly when I wrote, I was not required to write the assignments or turn in any homework. At the end of the school year, I would take the same final exams that the other kids in my grade took for each class. If I passed, I would go on to eighth grade. If I failed, I would be held back a year to repeat those classes. No one ever told me to read my history assignments or study my math. It was up to me. Since I did not intend to be a grade behind my friends, I gladly taught myself. Alice was interested in my schoolwork, especially my history lessons. Whenever I told her what I was reading, she listened carefully. Sometimes she asked questions, which forced me to go back in my book for the answers. Other times we had lively discussions, which we both enjoyed. I learned to respect Alex, Alice's intellect, and I kidded her about getting a job as my tutor. The school had a collection of newspapers and magazine articles about Sister Kenny. Curious about the woman who invented torture time, I read them. I had assumed Sister Kenny was a Catholic nun. She was not. Sister is an Australian military term, the equivalent of a first lieutenant in the United States Army. Elizabeth Kenny was commissioned Sister while serving as a nurse in World War I. Sister Kenny developed her unique treatments accidentally. While on vacation in the bush country of Australia in 1903, she was asked to help a sick child. Polio was not yet a common disease, and she had no idea what was wrong with the little girl, who was in extreme pain and unable to straighten one arm and leg. There was no telephone and no doctor or hospital nearby. Sister Kenny had a special interest and knowledge of muscles because her younger brother's muscles had been weak when he was a child. She developed exercises for him even before she began her nurse's training. She recognized that the little girl's agony was caused by severe muscle spasms, and she knew the relaxing power of heat. She tore a wool blanket into strips, dipped them in boiling water, wrung them out, and placed them on the child. The little girl stopped crying and fell asleep. Each time the little girl woke up in pain, Sister Kenny applied more hot packs. As the muscles relaxed, she gently massaged the child's arm and leg until the girl was able to straighten them. A second child soon showed the same symptoms, and once again, Sister Kenny eased the pain with hot packs and massage. Using her knowledge of muscles, See, she suggested exercises for the children to do as soon as they were well enough. When she was finally able to discuss these cases with the doctor, she learned that her patients had suffered from infantile 
paralysis, the original name for polio, and that her treatment had never before been tried. The doctor was amazed to learn that both the children had recovered. Family friends heard of her success in the bush country and asked her to treat their child. As polio epidemics increased, so did reports of Sister Kenny's unorthodox treatments. And other people sought her to help for their children too. Not all patients recovered completely, but many did, especially those who received treatment early in their illness. The Australian doctors ignored her successes and didn't try her ideas. She opened her own small clinic and her methods worked so well that she began training other people to use them so she could open additional clinics. The Australian medical officials, however, refused to sanction her work. In 1938, at the height of the polio epidemic, they issued a lengthy report to the public which stated that Sister Kenny's methods were mistaken and unnecessary. Discouraged by this rejection, Sister Kenny left her homeland in 1940 and traveled to the United States, settling in Minnesota. Word of her unusual treatments preceded her, and when she arrived in the U.S., she was greeted by newspaper reporters. Possibly because the newspapers created high public interest, doctors in the United States gave her a chance to demonstrate her methods. They were astounded by her results. Badly crippled patients showed rapid improvement if they began the, the Kenny treatment soon enough. News of her accomplishments spread and many doctors in Minneapolis asked Sister Kenny to work with their polio patients. Soon, her procedures were widely accepted and in December 1942, the Sister Kenny Institute, a facility for teaching her theories and methods, was dedicated in Minneapolis. Eventually, her methods were adopted all over the world, including Australia. As I read, I realize how fortunate I was that by the time I was stricken with polio, the Kenny method was standard treatment for cases like mine. Previously, many polio patients were put in splints and casts to keep their arms and legs straight. Polio causes muscle spasms, which feel much like the familiar Charlie horse cramp that people sometimes get in their legs. The spasms caused people's arms and legs to bend, and without treatments, the limbs sometimes stayed bent permanently. The casts were intended to prevent that. I remembered the severe cramps that bent my knees when I first got polio and imagined how it would have felt if my legs had been put into casts. By comparison, by comparison torture time seemed like a picnic. Prior to Sister Kenny, some patients were left in casts for years. When the casts were finally removed, the patients could not move their limbs at all because muscles, which are never used, waste away. Because of the casts, even muscles not affected by polio became withered. I didn't need to read to statistics <coughs> to know that the Kenny method worked. <coughs> all I had to do was move my arms and legs. I was getting better, and hers was the only treatment I had received. If I had gotten sick a few years earlier, while Sister Kenny was still in Australia, my future would surely have been dreary. <laughs>